sign the card um, tonight, and then he's going to take that uh, with him to um, up to Denver. So we need to pray for for that, and then uh, baptismal service on July 9th at Grace Bible Church. Also, our fellowship dinner is coming up a week from Saturday. Saturday night at 6 o'clock, so be sure to sign up for bringing dessert or um, side dishes or whatever. And then, uh, just about official, that we're taking a group of people to Washington, D.C. next year. You can put it on your calendar on April the 25th to 28th. That's a Wednesday through Saturday. We've got three nights, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, secured at the uh, Hilton Garden Inn in Arlington, Virginia. And we'll go up there, and people can come. Some people may not be able to get three days off. They may only be able to come up on Thursday or whatever. That's fine. And um, uh, we're going to go to the Bible Museum. I'll put details up on the website, but be planning now uh, for that trip. So... Uh, we got 30 rooms reserved, and I think they'll go pretty quickly because I'm hearing a lot of positive response. So it's going to be a good trip. We're going to have some things I can't announce I'm still working on. And uh, Dan Ingram and I will teach uh, some morning Bible studies on the Bible in American history. And then we'll go from the hotel to the museum. Everybody goes through at their own pace, their own learning level, whatever, so it's not like a group tour. Uh, and then... Um, People can have the rest of the day to do whatever they want to do and go to many different things in the D.C. area, the Holocaust Museum, the American History Museum, the Art Museums, the Spy Museum, um, Arlington National Cemetery, the NRA Museum. I'm looking at you, Greg. So, great stuff. We'll have a great time. So, um, I did have my... What did I, no, I had my glasses. What did I do with my glasses? Where did I put my glasses? What? No, I had them on. I was back there in the back. Alan, did I take them off and set them down back there in the kitchen? If you'd look, please. All right, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They should walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. What's going on here? Oh, weird night. There. Okay. 
All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together as a body of believers to uh, fellowship around the teaching of your word. Father, we're reminded of our uh, dear friends who are suffering what may be life-threatening diseases. We think specifically about Kendall Weeks and also Mark Perkins. We're thankful that the treatment has gone well and pray that he'll be in the tests that are taken in the next couple of days. They'll discover he's in remission, and we pray for uh, him and his family. We also pray for Gene Brown and his health and his strength and um, for his family. And, Father, we continue to pray for him as he continues to fight this, this lung disease. And, Father, we trust that you will uh, comfort him, comfort his family as he struggles through this. Father, we pray that we as a congregation will be really sensitive to those in our congregation who are uh, homebound now and who are facing different health challenges that we can encourage them and remember them and call them and let them know that they're in our, our prayers and our thoughts and, and encourage them with the word. And Father, we pray that we'll be encouraged with the word tonight as we study and focus on what you have to teach us this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now that is the strangest thing with my glasses, because I came up here and I put them on. And I specifically remember that. And then, I don't know, I said it, took them off and set them somewhere. Okay, fortunately I have a backup. All right, let's open our Bibles this evening to what? It is, sneaking up on me. 1 Kings 17, 1 Kings 17, and we're continuing our study in apologetics coming out of uh, 1 Peter 3.15, that we are to give an answer for the hope that is in us. And what we've studied in the past few weeks is showing how God confronts human viewpoint thinking, and that's essentially what we're doing when we're giving an answer to people. And there are different ways in which we do this because everybody's different. So there's no one-size-fits-all. It's just like witnessing. There's no one-size-fits-all. There's no um, uh, set thing. You know, I think all of us, when we first start witnessing to people, we use certain tracks or tools because that's just part of the learning process. And as we, there they are. See, it's old age. There you go, Bert. At least they weren't on top of my head. That's, that was the first thing I did was I went like that. <laughs> We've all done that. Okay, so uh, we're studying how to give an answer, how to talk to unbelief. That's essentially what this is. It's just communication. But in the process, what we've discovered is that there are right ways and wrong ways to do this. And in the way that a lot of apologetics is presented, as I've pointed out in the past, there are compromises that are made in the realm of methodology. Now, I'm going to point some things out as we go through this this evening, but um, just a review of um, uh, basic questions that we've answered. What's apologetics? Why should we learn about apologetics? Why do some people object to apologetics, usually because they don't understand it? Fourth, the Bible doesn't use apologetics. Why should we? And that's really the question that we're developing here is how the Bible uses apologetics. 
when we understand that apologetics has to do with giving a rational, organized, thoughtful response to the gospel. Sandy, do we have those handouts? Okay, I'm updating this glossary every week. And would you bring me one too, please? Thank you. Um, Apologetics is giving a reasoned, thoughtful response to someone who asks, how can you believe that silly Christian stuff? You know, and unfortunately, the way the questions often asked puts us on the defensive. And we need to think strategically and not emotionally. And we need to figure out how and think through how are we going to respond in ways that sort of turn that back on on the other person without it deteriorating into an argument or into who knows more and who knows less and those kind of things. We've all had uh, those kinds of conversations. And we also have to understand that that the the environment, the cultural environment in which we are communicating the gospel is going to differ. We live in a time when there's a a worldview shift going on from modernism to to postmodernism. And some of the people you know really are are modernists. For them, facts matter and... um, and you can come to understand maybe some measure of truth. In postmodernism, there is no truth. Everything is relative. The only truth is that there's no universal truth, which is a self-refuting proposition. Because if you believe there's no universal truth, then that's a universal truth, so how can you believe that that's true? But they do. That's, that's their organizing principle. And and the, the framework we ought to keep in mind that I've had since the beginning is it's just like going into, if you were to go to Thailand or you were to go to China or you were to go to Siberia or you were to go to Mecca and you were a missionary and you wanted to as clearly as possible uh, communicate the gospel to those people, you don't do it by giving them the four spiritual laws. You don't give it them by taking a track like we have out in the back with the little question and answer stuff because that's not going to work because that's th- those are really geared for people who already have had some exposure to biblical Christianity and have some sort of framework for Christian theism. There are a lot of people that you approach them with some of these uh, tools that were developed 40, 50, 60 years ago when America had a more of a Judeo-Christian theistic framework and you could sort of take that for granted. Those don't work with a lot of people today. Uh, You have to think in terms of that culture. That's why um, when we had the pastor's conference and Grace Hensarling spoke at noon one day and Grace and and two other women spent about 25 years, thank you very much, Sandy, spent about 25 years down in in Columbia up with a... um, uh, primitive people up in the mountains before they could translate the New Testament into their their language. They were working on that, but it took them five years to learn the language, learn the culture, learn how the people thought before they could even begin to communicate to them. And see, a lot of us get the idea, well, that's silly. Let's just give them the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. Well, who's Jesus? What's a sin? How does that work? I don't understand it. Who's God? And and you've got all these issues that have to be understood. And if you sit there and, and you listen to me say that, and you go, well, that's, that's just silly, then you need to go back to kindergarten in terms of learning the Word of God. 
because that's the way reality is. We're talking to people who've got layers and layers and layers of truth suppression mechanism and idolatry and false philosophies and false religions that are that are covering up their God consciousness, that image of God that's within them and that knowledge of God within them. And you can't just sit down and shoot them with your gospel gun. And um, uh, some people say, well, I went somewhere. I gave somebody track and they responded. Well, great. Well, did you ask them how many times they've heard the gospel before? And they'll probably say, well, 15 times. I grew up in church, but it never quite made sense this way before. You're not the first person to give them the gospel. In fact, many studies, uh, surveys that are taken of believers indicate that the average person has heard the gospel between seven and nine times before they respond by uh, in faith. So don't think, it, it, you know, Paul talks about somebody plants, somebody waters, Somebody comes along. It takes a, it's a process, and we often get very impatient. We think we can just sit down and give somebody the gospel, and boom, they're going to be saved and go into heaven. And it doesn't work that way, folks. And if you take that approach, you're going to be frustrated, or you're going to get people who say, you know, just pray a simple prayer. Well, they, they can pray the prayer, but that doesn't mean they understand the prayer. And you can't believe something you don't understand and it takes time to understand who God is, that God is righteous, that man is a sinner, and we violated his righteousness, and there's only one way to solve it. It takes time. Now, you may be the 8th, ninth, 15th, 20th person that communicates something like that to them, and they get it, and you think, wow, that was simple. The rest of us are out there, and all we're doing is planting seeds. So anyway, it's a process, and we have to learn to think strategically in terms of our communication. Now, as I pointed out using this chart, there's four different views of knowledge in the world. Rationalism, which means man can, through the use of reason alone, using, uh, using logic, uh, starting with innate ideas, can come to truth. That has many fallacies, and it can't, and it ignores the fact that there, you can't learn certain things just from reason alone. God has to tell us things. Same thing with empiricism. Each of these have their counterpart in uh, apologetics. There's classic apologetics, which emphasizes the law of non-contradiction as the as logic as being the common ground. The weakness with that is that that logic. The logic machine in 99.99.9999% of human beings, okay, 100% really, is affected by sin. We can't assume that lo their logic machine in their head hasn't been affected by the corruption of sin. And this is what it presupposes is that logic somehow is that area of neutrality. And in, in the weakness with that classic Apologetics is it only gets you to a 99% uh, probability that God exists and that the Bible is true. It doesn't give you 100% because the ground they're standing upon is this common ground of logic. Um, empiricism is the idea of uh, evidentialism, that it's the facts, it's history, it's science. We can, we can go there as common ground. But once again, you get into the problem that, that, that in empiricism, you can get to truth through the use of logic, but once again, that logic machine is corrupted by sin. 
So that doesn't mean that God the Holy Spirit can't use evidence and can't use logic, but that's not the common ground. And then there's mysticism, which is, well, you know, people just aren't going to respond, so so all I, I'm left with is giving them my personal testimony, and I know it's true because Jesus lives in my heart. And, and, and that's not how the Bible presents the evidence of the truth of, of Christianity. So we're left with what's called presuppositionalism, which accepts the truth of Scripture as revelation. Now, I'm pointing out examples of this as we go through. So we looked at Genesis 1. Uh, we looked at Romans 1. We looked at Genesis 3 and compared that. And what we saw when we looked at Genesis 3 compared with Romans 1, and these are critical. These principles we see all the way through that people already know they're sinners based on Genesis uh, 3.8 and based on uh, Romans 1, uh, 18 to 23. People, You don't have to convince them they're a sinner. You may have to dig through a lot of their uh, suppression camouflage to get to it, but everybody knows they're a sinner. Uh, second is that people are not morally or spiritually neutral. We're not coming to them as if this is just, we're, we're all neutral and nobody's had anything affected by sin. They're reinterpreting all data in terms of their uh, human viewpoint thinking. They have dark, darkened hearts, Romans one twenty one. Also, third, God or Jesus often use rhetorical questions to expose human flaws, to get people thinking about what they believe. Now, that doesn't mean you set, you ask them a question and then you wait five seconds and then you give them an answer. You let them figure it out and come to an answer because they've got to have a little self-discovery in the process and that can take a year, five years, ten years. It can take a long time. It doesn't happen. In some people, it may not. It may be something that they're ready for, but it takes time to get people to think. Um, and then... Uh, fourth, that we saw that God uses general revelation. He uses the facts of history and various uh, evidences to expose human sin, rebellion, and responsibility. So that is what we're seeing. And we're going to see this again in the evidence we look at, the incident we look at tonight. Uh, the difference, as we look at Elijah tonight... Elijah is often used as an example. He's giving evidence of the existence of God. Is that what Elijah's doing? When Elijah calls down, calls down fire from heaven, is, he, is his goal to prove that God exists, that Baal doesn't exist? Is that what's going on there? Now, you'll have some people who take that view, but is that really what's going on there? Now, if you believe what I just summarized, then and you, you are a presuppositionalist, and Romans 1, 18 to 23 is true, then you don't need to prove God exists because they already know God exists. Okay, when, when who is Elijah challenging on Mount Carmel? The priests of Baal, are they religious? Do they have God consciousness? Do, believe, do they believe there's a God? Yeah, they believe there's a lot of gods. Okay, they have suppressed the truth. You don't have to prove to them there's a God. So Elijah's not trying to prove there's a God. He's doing something else. He's giving evidence, but he's not giving it in a way that validates the assumptions 
and presuppositions of the unbeliever. That's what's what's important here. So the difference, as I pointed out, between apologetics and Christian evidence is Christian evidence is really a subset. It's a subtopic within the broader topic of apologetics. Christian evidence's focus is on miracles, what the Bible calls signs. John says these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So signs are important. God validates that, but it's how they're used. We have miracles. You have the origin and transmission of the Scripture, the resurrection of Christ, the virgin conception and birth, the facts of history and biblical events, people and episodes. All of that are the evidences of the truth of Christianity. Those evidences are our weapons, just like a soldier. A soldier's got his um, got his pistol. He's got numerous different types of tactical rifles that he can use, from uh, from a sniper rifle to a an urban rifle like the Israeli Tavor. He's got a bayonet. He's got a knife. He's got hand grenades, grenade launchers. He's got all kinds of different tools. All Christians all have these same evidences. The difference is how you use the evidences, that strategy, and that's really what we're talking about. And sometimes it's hard for people. This gets abstract. I understand that took me a lot of time thinking and reading to come to an understanding of this, so I don't expect anyone here to, to, to really grasp what we're going through right off the bat because this is this gets into some of that deeper, uh, more significant areas of biblical Christianity where we're really focused on renewing how we think and focusing on our focusing on our thinking. So apologetics then is dealing with the strategy and tactics for deploying the weapons, which are Christian evidences. So uh, one of the things I pointed out in the past, even trained fighters only hit their targets in a combat situation about 30% of the time. You can go through, I had Jess Stark run through a lot of evidence for me, uh, that that trained SWAT team uh, police officers who go through all kinds of training will get in a combat situation and only hit their target 30% of the time because of the tension, because of the pressure, because everything's moving and everything's going really, uh, really fast. And so that's the importance of training. And I wish we could figure out some way to really engage in one-on-one training like role play, uh, but we don't really have a framework for doing that. Now, one thing I added to your, to your um, glossary, uh, a couple of things to point out here is I've given you definitions for cosmogony and cosmology and empiricism and rationalism. Um, I've listed the existence of God arguments, so you can read over those terms related to metaphysics and mysticism. Sorry it's a little fuzzy, but my my printer's got some uh, inkjet issues. I keep cleaning it, but it doesn't get much better than this. Um, but the word polemics, I didn't have it last week. I added that this time along with a few other uh, tweaks. Polemics is the act of engaging in a verbal or written refutation of another viewpoint. That's the root definition. And I pointed out Genesis 1 is a polemic against 
the Egyptian cosmogony against the Babylonian cosmogony against Canaanite cosmogony. And and God's such a great multitasker that he's able to, by the way he presented the original creation in Genesis 1, to basically refute all other attempts to explain origins. Whether it's Greek, whether it's modern science, whatever it is, the Bible refutes that in the way Genesis 1-1 to 2-5 or 2-4 is is structured. So a lot of the Bible is polemical. Now, we live in a world today, and this this is a difficult thing. We live in a world today where we have a youth culture that's grown up that has a problem with anybody who is critical of somebody else's beliefs. They think of that as judgmental. And so if for them, judge, this kind of judgmentalism is a sin. If God engages in polemics, in their view, that's a sin, so therefore God is sinful. See how crafty Satan is at doing this. And I've had people who have been in this congregation in the past who um, have reacted, and they said, you're too polemical. I'm not nearly as polemical as the Bible, and the reason you don't understand how polemical the Bible is is because you haven't spent enough time in Bible class to really understand it. And so you're just using the human viewpoint world's value system to judge Bible teaching. And this is a problem today because the Bible is extremely polemical. God is constantly poking his finger in the eyes of all these human viewpoint philosophies and systems. And he doesn't do it in a nice manner. He's making fun of people who believe the wrong thing. And, and that's what happens here in, in 1 Kings chapter, um, chapter 18. That's polemics. The definition goes on to say, polemics describes an element in a biblical passage which is designed to show the superiority of Christian theism over other religions and philosophies. Much of the Old Testament is a polemic against the idolatrous pagan religion surrounding Israel. And the only reason people don't realize that is because they're so ignorant of what the cultures believed around Israel, that they don't catch it. So that's part of my uh, responsibility to point that out. So we see this. I think one of the greatest polemical chapters in all of the Bible is 1 Kings 18. Now, to understand what's going on, and in fact, all of Elijah's ministry and all of Elisha's ministry, Elisha who follows Elijah, all of their ministries is designed to show the superiority of of the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his revelation of himself to Israel over against all of the pagan gods and goddesses, because this is the problem, that the, the Jews are constantly rejecting their God and turning to the gods of the Canaanites and the gods of these other, other cultures around them. They see that again and again in the book of, uh, of Judges. They're constantly going to human viewpoint to solve their problems, and then God disciplines them, and you have that whole cycle. Now, in the Old Testament... What you have is that God enters into a covenant with Israel. And he does that when uh, the Israelites have gotten away from Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai. They spend a year at Mount Sinai. And Moses spent 40 days 
40 nights up on Mount Sinai where God gave him the law. It was a contract. It was a covenant that God entered into with Israel. At the end of the covenant, God has a section where he says, if you're obedient, these are the good things I'm going to do for you. If you're disobedient, these are the bad things that are going to happen. Okay, that's called the blessings and the curses. You find them in uh, Leviticus chapter uh, 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Leviticus 26 has them in a set of five different cycles. So they're five different intensified stages of national judgment or national discipline on Israel. The fifth stage of which is that they will be uh, overrun by an enemy power. They will be defeated there and they will be deported from the land because God's promises to, to Abraham is that if you obey me, you know, I'm giving you the land. If you obey me, you can stay there. If you don't obey me, I'm going to kick you out. But the land is yours. So the Mosaic law fits that and says, if you're obedient, you're going to be blessed in the land. But if you're disobedient, I'm going to judge you and I'm going to take all the goodies away and I'm going to kick you out. That's the history of Israel. There, they were kicked out the first time in 722 with the northern kingdom, in 586 with the southern kingdom. And then some of them returned uh, after the 70-year Babylonian captivity, and they began to return, but not all of them. Most of them stayed in what was called the dispersion or the diaspora. And then they're kicked out again in AD 70 when uh, the armies of Rome under Titus destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple. And they're still out, but God is bringing them back to Israel. So that's the overview. Now, if you look at Leviticus 26, that's where God gives outlines the five cycles of discipline. In the second cycle of discipline, you have this statement made. After all this, that is the first cycle of discipline. If you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I'm going to ratchet it up a little more, and you're going to have more problems. In verse 19, I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. What is God saying? I'm going to take away the rain. I'm going to bring a drought that's going to be so bad, you're going to think that the that the earth is like bronze, like metal, and can't absorb liquid at all. And the heavens will be like iron, and no water's coming through. And you're going to have an economic catastrophe, and people will go hungry because you, don't, you can't grow crops. Verse 20, your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. It's an economic disaster. Okay, no fertility in the land, no productivity, no prosperity. Okay, so in contrast to this, one all of the different false religions had a had gods and goddesses whose function was to bring prosperity and fertility, and it was they were worshipped in a very graphic sexual way. They're called fertility religions. And so uh, they would, that's why these temples would have temple prostitutes, and they would reenact uh, sexual acts in order to stimulate the gods to bring fertility to the land. 
and they also included things like human sacrifice in order to get the God's attention. That's the background. Now, the worst form of this was the worship of a Canaanite religion of Baal, who's the storm god, and his consort, uh, Ashtoreth. And it was uh, Ahab's wife, Jezebel, who's Phoenician. He goes up to Tyre and Sidon to that area, and he marries this gal called Jezebel, who becomes basically the the uh, uh, poster child of evil and wickedness throughout the Bible and idolatry. And even though the northern kingdom was already into idolatry, it was kind of idolatry light. And then when he brings Jezebel in, Jezebel brings all her priests with uh, the, the Baal religion, the fertility religion into Israel, and they introduce all of this sexual perversion into the northern kingdom and label it religion. And that's why their their system is so evil. So God now is going to announce judgment on the northern kingdom because of this evil. And so in 1 Kings 17.1, we read, And Elijah the Tishbite, Elijah is a prophet. This is the first time we hear about him. He's introduced. He's, he's a Gileadite, which is Gilead is on the uh, east side of the Jordan River. And he is sent to Ahab the king. And he announces to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except in my word. What's he doing? He's announcing the second cycle of discipline. He, he doesn't have to prove that God exists. Everybody knows God exists. He's, he takes his stand on the truth of God's word, and he's not going to argue for that. He's going to say, this is what's going to happen, and you are now going to feel the wrath of Yahweh Elohim, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we have the episode that's described in, in chapter 17 where he goes to the brook Kareth, which flows into the Jordan, and he's provi- God provides for him there until the, you know, this is a drought, so what's going to happen? The brook's going to dry up. And then God's going to provide for him, and he takes him to Zarephath. Well, if you look at a Bible map, you'll discover that Zarephath is where? It's in Tyre and Sidon. It's in Phoenicia. He takes Elijah right into the heart of enemy territory in terms of religious enemy. That's like saying, Elijah, after you announce this, I'm going to take you to Mecca, and I'm going to take care of you in Mecca. Okay, does that communicate? And you're going to be right in the heart of the evil empire of the enemy religion, and I'm going to hide you there and take care of you. And that's where where Elijah goes. He goes to uh, Zarephath where this widow takes care of him. And, of course, they're suffering from the drought and and the economic catastrophe. But God miraculously provides uh, for oil and everything and also is going to raise her son from the dead. That's the backdrop. So after three and a half years of this drought, we're talking a serious economic depression Then we read in chapter 18, verse 1, It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah. So he gets special revelation. He doesn't just have a feeling. 
God speaks to him, and he says, Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Now, Ahab has labeled Elijah's public enemy number one, and he's got his SS troops out scouring every nook and cranny of the northern kingdom to find Elijah. But guess what? God took Elijah out of the northern kingdom and hit him up in enemy territory. So they haven't been able to find him. So Elijah goes back to Samaria, and the note there, there's a severe famine in Samaria. They can't grow crops. They can't get every, get anything. At, they can go down to HEB, and the whole produce section is empty, and the meat section is empty, and they can't find anything. So the people have completely given themselves over to Baal, so they're going through all sorts of religious incantations and rites and sacrifices in order to entice Baal and the Asherah to save them. Now, why Baal? Four things about Baal. First of all, he's the chief god in the Canaanite pantheon. He is somewhat akin to Jupiter or Zeus. Uh, Jupiter in um, uh, Roman pantheon, Zeus in the Greek pantheon, and he and they're also the gods of thunder and lightning and rain and things like that. There's a superior god who's called El, but he sort of got di- displaced by uh, by Baal, just as Saturn or Uranus was displaced by Jupiter and or Zeus. Second, as a storm god, he's responsible for rain. He's responsible for lightning. He's responsible for thunder and productivity. Third, as I pointed out earlier, he was introduced into the northern kingdom by Jezebel, and this is why she's going to have suffer such a horrible death at, at the end. And then the fourth point, in the mythology of Baalism, drought indicates the death of Baal. So when God says there's going to be a drought, he's not just saying that because he's going to bring hard times. God, God is multitasking over 95% of the time. 100% is over 95% of the time. Okay, God always multitasks. And so when he brings this drought, he is just sticking his finger right in the eyes of all the Canaanites and say, see, your crummy little religious system doesn't work, and I'm going to show you in a very graphic way why it doesn't work. So that's what God is doing. Now, remember our principle. The reason for this isn't to prove that God's right and they're wrong. The purpose for this is to get them to turn back to God. And that's a principle for us in evangelism is we're not doing this out of a mean spirit to prove that these people are idiots and they, they're, 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 they're following false gods or anything else. Our goal is to win them. That's why we're to give an answer with grace and humility we are, and meekness. We are to be winning them for the Lord. So this whole episode in chapter 18 is a polemic. God is showing that their system doesn't work and that he is the, he is the true God. He's not proving he exists. He's demonstrating his faithfulness to the Mosaic Law. And he's demonstrating that only if you presuppose and live on the basis of God's revelation will there be productivity, fertility, and happiness. 
You're not going to get it living on, on the other side. So what Elijah is doing here is to, he's demonstrating the inability of false religious systems to answer life's questions. And that's part of what we can do when we're witnessing to people by asking questions. You know, basically, we're doing the Dr. Phil thing. We're saying, well, how's that working for you? Yeah, is, is that really solving your problems? No, we're not going to simplify that. You've got to think a little more and be a little more sophisticated in your questions. But, but, but that's the idea is to help them think through what they're what they're trying to do to find happiness and stability and peace in, in their life. And, and uh, most people are defensive. Yeah, it's working fine for me. Well, great. That's wonderful. And you just have to leave it there and let them now work with what you've given them. That takes some time. Not always. You know, remember, no one situation is, is the same as another situation. It takes time. So, Elijah is going to confront paganism. Now, this in the picture here, this is a statue that's up on top of Mount Carmel in Israel. And I just love it. If you look at it, here you have Elijah depicted, and he's got a great prophet's beard, and he has his sword up here. But if you look down here, there is a priest of Baal under his feet. And he has his foot on the guy's shoulder holding him down, and he is in the act of chopping his head off, which is what happens at the end of the episode. He's going to decapitate. I just love that, that statue. So he is confronting paganism. So it's a beautiful area up on Mount Carmel, and it overlooks the Esdralon Valley. So this is a picture from up on the ridge looking down, uh, down below. And... So you can see the highway down below and some of the other areas, just, just a beautiful area. Uh, and all of this uh, goes around here, and this is the, the ridge line of, uh, of the Carmel Ridge. Okay, here's another look, uh, looking back at it at the area up where the, where the statue is, and this is where, where this took place. Now, if you look, at, look down in chapter 18... Look down at verse 21. Elijah has called to Ahab um, to assemble all the Israelites there. This isn't a small event. Remember, there's 450 priests of Baal. There's 400 priests of Asherah. How many is that? 950. Plus Elijah, plus Ahab. So you have at least 952 Plus, you have this enormous crowd of Israelites. There might have been 5, 10, 15,000 people who have gathered to watch this, this challenge from Elijah to the priests of Baal. This is a huge event. This is not something that's done you know, in the back, backwoods without a lot of publicity. Everybody knows what's going on because... In verse 20, we read that Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. So it's a huge crowd. And so Elijah comes out to the people, and notice what he does. He asks a question. He doesn't tell them what's getting ready to happen. He doesn't tell them what the answer should be. 
he asks them a question to get them to think about what they're going to do. How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow, follow him. Now, what's interesting here is when you look down, and we all have heard the story before of how uh, they, they build this huge altar and uh, the, the priests of Baal and Asher get out there and they start doing everything they can think of to get Baal's attention because he's probably on a break or he's in the restroom, something, and, and, and Elijah taunts him. You know, this is a godly thing to do. What's the matter? Can't your God answer your prayer? Maybe, maybe he took a break. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Scream a little louder. You know, he's pointing out the problems in their view. But see, we live in a world where if you're a Christian and you use that kind of sarcasm against Islam, oh, you're just terrible. You're so insensitive. You're just one of those nasty little Christians who thinks you know it all and you've got the only way to heaven. Look at what Elijah does. And he says, and when he says this word, he says, how long will you falter? He, the word there has this idea of hop from one view to another. And it's the same word that is used when you read down when you have the um, uh, priests of Baal and Asherah and they're dancing and going into all these contortions as they try to get the attention of Baal. They're hopping around. That's the word. And what he's picturing is that, that the Jews are hopping back and forth. They're, one day, they're, they, they, one minute they're going to go to God, and the next minute they're going to go to Baal. Whoever is going to do whatever it is they want done, they're going to go with that guy, and they just go back and forth. They can't make up their mind, uh, and they're not set on Baal or God. They're, just, they're pra- total pragmatists, sort of like Americans today. <coughs> So the background for this is in verse 17. As Elijah came on the scene, he's, he's confronted by Ahab. And Ahab said, calls him the troubler of Israel. See, that's one of the things that you'll always get if you're standing for the truth of God's word is you'll be accused of being the problem. And we're seeing that today. And we can't react to that in, in anger or resentment or defensiveness. And that's not what Elijah does here. And Elijah, though, responds, and he says, I haven't troubled Israel. See, he's not going to grant the assumption of of Ahab. He's not going to ignore it. He's going to confront. He says, I'm not a troubler of Israel. You're the one that's troubled Israel because of what you have done. You have forsaken the commandment of the Lord, and you followed the Baals. He brings it right back to Scripture. This is the problem. That if you follow the Baals, there are certain consequences because we live in God's world. The God who created everything the way it is, the God who created right and wrong and morals and everything, the divine institutions. And when you violate them, there are going to be consequences. Now, on your assumption, there aren't going to be any consequences. This is just going to be all fine. But we're going to have a little uh, visual aid demonstration here to show that you're, you can't really live on the basis of your assumptions, that your, your assumptions about your 
religion, your, your mythology, isn't going to work in the real world. And so we're going to have a real test of this. So in verse 19, he tells Ahab to go send to gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, isn't that interesting? That means that they're on the dole. They're on Jezebel's welfare system. She's the one who gives them their meal ticket. She's the one who gives them their food stamps. They are totally dependent on the government to sustain them. This is an egregious uh, uh, evidence of the collusion of church and state, religion and politics. In verse 20, Ahab sends for all the children of Israel. It's a huge show. And so Elijah comes to the people and he says, how long are you going to falter between these two opinions? Now, what's going on behind this is something that we need to think about. It's not not part of our content of our witnessing, but it's part of how we think about what's going on here because the, the person you're talking to, the pagan, the unbeliever, thinks according to certain ideas and certain norms and standards and certain values. And you think a different set. You have a different assumption about the ultimate nature of reality and of how you know truth and right and wrong and all this. It's a package deal. So we're going to step back and understand what's at the core here. So I'm going to look at four points on the elements of a religion or a philosophy or a worldview or approach to life. All of those various different things. Religion is going to have the idea of worshiping a certain god or goddess or pantheon or something like that, a philosophy. You may be, I'm an agnostic, I'm a rationalist, I'm an empiricist, I believe in science. Science is the key to truth. So all of these are different worldviews or approach to life. First point, everybody has a philosophy of life. Some are have a, have a conscious philosophy of life. They've thought it through. Some people don't. Some people have a conscious, rational, internally consistent view. Most people don't. They just sort of live life the way it comes. That is a philosophy of life. It may be a disorganized, irrational, inconsistent view of life, but that's, it's still a philosophy of life. Every worldview contains certain universals indicated by words like should, ought, right, and wrong. So when you are talking about something, for example, you make some statement that, that God is going to hold people accountable for their, their spirituality, and th- somebody may say, I don't believe that, that's wrong. Okay, well, let's, let's stop and talk about that a minute. Where do you get this idea of right and wrong? If you say something is wrong, you're appealing to some standard. What's the standard? Where did you get that idea? Well, everybody says so. Well, who? Who's everybody? Where did they get that standard? You know, you probe these kinds of questions. So words like should and ought and right and wrong are, are really windows that we can take advantage of to open up and expose what people believe and help them understand what they believe. 
So the third point is that this is the entry point to the worldview, and it's often through values or ethics. Somebody says that's a terrible thing to do is to drive a car and put all of that carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide and put all of those exhaust fumes into the atmosphere. That's going to destroy the planet. Really, that's wrong. Where do you get that idea? What's the evidence for that? That's a long conversation, but that's that's what we're doing is we're trying to help them understand what is going on? Because so many people just talk to other people who have those same ideas. They just sort of validate one another without thinking through the evidence. So what does that say to us? we got to learn to understand what these issues are. Fourth, ethical principles are based on prior assumptions about the nature of truth or knowledge and the ultimate nature of the universe. Now, in the past, I've used this iceberg illustration. I've got a little different illustration way of organizing it in these slides. So there's our little archaeological statue, discovered statue of Baal. He's standing there. He's got his arm raised. That's because he probably held a lightning bolt in that hand um, in the ancient world. So that's, that's Baal. So we're going to start with ethics. That's what we were talking about just a minute ago. Ethics, values, right or wrong, are often the the, the starting point for helping to expose people's uh, belief systems, their their police belief systems. Now, before I get into this, let me let me talk about one other thing. Part of our responsibility as believers, part of my responsibility as a pastor, is to challenge these human viewpoint or pagan beliefs. Now, we all have them, myself included. We have picked them up from the culture around us. So one of the first areas that that you can think about as we go through this has to do with our own souls, exposing the human viewpoint corruption that is still present in our own souls as we still in our sin nature seek to assert our autonomy or our independence uh, from God because we're products of our culture and our environment. We pick up these ideas. We're influenced by friends, neighbors. We're influenced by uh, films. We're influenced by the music that we listen to. We're influenced by uh, teachers, professors, all kinds of ideas that come into our thinking. So we have to start with ourselves Jesus talks about that when how come you can be so concerned about a speck in, in your brother's eye when you're not taking the log out of your own eye? So we have to do that self-reflection in terms of our own worldview. The next thing that we do is when we have conversations with unbelievers, we need to help uh, help them expose their own belief system in a way that's not antagonistic, argumentative, or combative. That we do this in grace helps a person see their flaws and failures of their own belief systems. That's what Elijah is doing. And the goal is to get them to change. The goal isn't to beat them over the head with how stupid and wrong they are. The goal is to help them understand the truth of Scripture so that they can they can change. And so as we look at this, and as I talk us through this, we, we start off with this idea of um, of right or wrong. So 
ethics and values and right and wrong leads to something. Once you develop systems of right and wrong, it leads to something that's built on that. That's what we're going to have down below. Beauty, order, aesthetics, uh, critical reflection on which is defined as a critical reflection on art, art, culture, and nature. Now, what you should see as I go through this is that years ago, and I've done this a couple of times, where I've critiqued music, especially in the church, the contemporary worship of music. That's how you get here, is you can evaluate everything that's produced in a culture, whether it's art, music, architecture, if you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Architecture is just architecture. It's just a building. It's just what works. Oh, so you're saying there's something in this world that's not corrupted by sin. Something in this world that's neutral, that is unaffected by the fall of man. Is that what you're saying? And, and there are people who believe that because we love our music. We love our art. We like what we like. Well, why do you like it? What is it in your soul that resonates when you look at some pagan art or, are you here, pagan music, that, uh, what is it that appeals to you? Why is it that, that you are more comfortable, you walk into, let's say, a contemporary worship service at a church, why are you more, why is a person more comfortable when they hear certain kinds of music than if they walk into a church and they hear traditional hymns and they've never heard any music like that and they don't feel comfortable? It has to do with your, your values of right and wrong. And you'll, you talk to somebody when you're having a conversation about contemporary worship and I'll say, well, I just don't believe you're right. See, it always comes back to that, that third stage there, ethics and values and right and wrong. So this is part of apologetics. It's part of thinking through a worldview that is internally consistent with the Word of God, and it's from that, that fortress that we're able to evaluate the other ideas. Now, if we go back the other way, where do we get ethics and values and right or wrong? We get that from knowledge. How do you know truth? If you say that's wrong, that's an absolute statement, or that's right, that's an absolute statement. Where do you get those absolutes? Where do they come from? How do you know they're true? How do you know that's right? How do you know that's wrong? That's the area philosophers call that epistemology. It's the idea of how we know what we know. But that doesn't operate in a vacuum either. Knowledge ultimately comes from our view of ultimate reality, which is God. So in the, um, in the iceberg illustration I used, we start at the bottom with God, and then we build up, and nine-tenths of that is below the surface, and we don't ever talk about it. Here I'm showing the structure. We start with God, and our view of God determines our view of knowledge and truth. Our view of knowledge and truth, then it determines our ethics and our values, and that in turn determines our beauty. And I'll tell you something. There is precious little written from an evangelical viewpoint on aesthetics. 
And when I first took philosophy, when I went to University of St. Thomas, these are the four branches of philosophy. It's metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, and aesthetics. And yet, when it comes to the area of Christian thought, very few people are writing on this because they used to. You go back to the Middle Ages, and there was a tremendous amount because these people thought deeply. They had the intellectual tools to do it. But we live in a world of intellectual poverty in the 20th century because our education system has been so influenced by modernist ideas and modernist ideas of the nature of man and postmodern ideas of the nature of man. That affects educational philosophy and theory. And so we become impoverished in our education system. And most people that are listening to me right now are going, man, this is really deep stuff. You went back 150 years ago, this would be basic third grade information or maybe junior high. You go back, this, and I was talking to some pastors yesterday, I said, do you realize that, that you go back and you read the commentaries written by theologians in the 19th century, and ours, our commentaries start with the English text. Those commentaries had the Greek text at the top, and everything that they wrote was based on the Greek text because it was assumed that if you were a pastor, you could read and understand Greek. Now we have to start with English, and we put the Greek in a footnote because nobody really understands that stuff anymore, so we don't want to distract them with it. Our, our level of education has become impoverished, but this is really, really important. So we have to grasp it, and now, like many important things, it takes time. It takes effort and thought to work our way through these things. So let me just point out a couple of more things on this slide. When we talk about ethics and value, there's a contrast between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint. The, the human, I mean, divine viewpoint is up here, that in terms of the biblical view of ethics, values, and right and wrong, we believe in absolute right or wrong, absolute values. It's based on the essence of God and values are communicated and revealed by God through the Scripture. But if you look at human viewpoint, it's arbitrary. Values are arbitrary. In the ancient world, they were priest-based. They came from different religions. So they, the priest would say, well, this is right and this is wrong. Or it was power-based. And we see that today. You go to totalitarian countries under Hitler, that the government determines what's right or wrong. You go to Stalin's um, uh, communist Soviet Union, the, the government determines what's right or wrong. That's what's happening today. We are caught in a culture war today where you go to the halls of Congress and the issue isn't what is right or wrong. The issue is who has the power to determine what's right or wrong. It's all about power. And this, this is destructive because we've forgotten that there's absolute truth, and so we don't want to go back to the standard of the Constitution. Um, and ultimately, all power, and you see this in the great tyrannies of the ancient world as well as modern tyrannies of the 20th century, they're violent, they're destruction, and they're dehumanizing. So that's your contrast. In the realm of ethics, you go either in the biblical direction of absolutes based on the essence of God, or you go towards arbitrary priest-based or power-based uh, ideas, and it ultimately leads to uh, that which is dehumanizing. 
in the area of knowledge and truth, for the Bible believer, knowledge is ultimately revealed. It's absolute and it's derivative. What do I mean by that? It's derived from God. It doesn't originate from man. It is derived from God. It comes from revelation. In human viewpoint, it's all inductive. You know, transfer this back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are going to observe everything in the garden and come to their knowledge of what right and wrong is. They're missing a piece of information that God says, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat from it, you will surely die. That's in, that is God revealing it. They couldn't get that information through induction, through observation and application. So in human viewpoint, all knowledge is inductive because we ultimately live in a relativistic world, and it's all, it's all relative, and, and truth only uh, differs only in degree not in kind. Therefore, all truth is valid. The, the, the truth of a spiritist animist culture is just as valid as the truth in a modernist science-based culture. That's, that's called what? Multiculturalism. All truth, and, and it's exemplified in this little mantra, all truth is God's truth. So they have their truth, we have their truth, it's all God's truth. And that is, that is really an assault. You'll hear it a lot in, in certain Christian circles. It's an assault on the absolute truth of Scripture. Okay, so knowledge, you're either going to be up here or you're going to be down here, one way or the other. And in terms of God, uh, what we see in, in this episode is it's Yahweh versus Baal. Yahweh is, is the creator God of the universe. He's holy, he's righteous, and he speaks to man, and that's how, and he's the basis for knowledge, the basis for communication, vocabulary, language, all of those things. And uh, in human viewpoint, he's always part of creation. And uh, I've been doing, as I've been doing more reading today, I, I, I mean, in the last week, when I talk about the scale of being, I, I, again and again, you see secular scholars talk about this. You probably never heard of it before, other than my references to it. Uh, but that God is part of the process. He's not outside of the process. So, and then when we come down to the last stage in terms of beauty, order, aesthetics, in human viewpoint, nature is worshipped as God. So that's exactly what Paul says in Romans. We worship the creature rather than the creator. And, and what this does is it destroys art and beauty because we don't have an external reference point to be able to analyze uh, God's creation. And it's, it's, if, if the, the beauty of, and the intricacy of a snowflake or a leaf or a blade of grass or a molecule, that, if that is a product of chance, then you're destroying it, ultimately in terms of beauty, and you end up going uh, in, in, in a wrong direction and then in divine viewpoint... Uh, God is the creator, and so man is in his image, and it elevates man, and it elevates what man produces. Aesthetics is something that began with God. Who's, who, who's, who's the first group to sing in the Bible? The sons of God 
in in Job, when God lays the foundation of the earth, they sing. They're singing in heaven. Singing involves words and music. Did the angels invent that, or was that already in the mind of God from eternity past? That was already in the mind of God from eternity past. There is a divine prototype for music, for lyrics, for art. You look at the Egyptians are coming out. We looked at them last time. The Egyptians, I mean, the the, um, Israelites are coming out of Egypt. What's their frame of reference for art? Egyptian art. Now, what happens at Mount Sinai? God says, I want you to, to build the tabernacle. What does God do? He gives the Holy Spirit to a holy and Bezalel so that the art is going to reflect divine viewpoint standards and not the human viewpoint pagan art standards of the Egyptians. We never think that, that there's a right art and a wrong art or a right music and a wrong music. But if everything comes is, originates from the mind of God and man perverts it or corrupts it through sin, then, then we've got to rethink everything in our culture. And unfortunately, we don't live on a culture that, that can even think about these things anymore because they're so academically impoverished. But I'll go over this again. This is hard for a lot of people, but this is what happens. We're going to have this head-on confrontation between divine viewpoint and human viewpoint right on top of Mount Carmel. And I didn't get there tonight, but uh, we'll get there next time because I've got 45 slides in this slideshow and we're only on 28. So we'll have to come back next time. This just sets the stage. And what you need to pay attention to is that the lessons we're learning here are going to be illustrated again in Acts uh, 14 and in Acts 17 when Paul and Barnabas went to um, uh, Lystra and then when Paul is speaking at uh, at, at the uh, uh, Areopag- Areopagus in Athens to the pagan philosophers. All of this fits, they all demonstrate the same themes. It's just tremendous. Father, thank you for this time to study these things. Help us to understand that all areas of thought should be under your control. We're to renovate our thinking. And that doesn't just mean at a superficial level uh, in terms of what we think, but how we think. And this is not easy. It's hard. We have to go over it and over and over it and dig down into what is really going on here. And that's what's behind what you're doing in episodes like the uh, confrontation between Elijah and the, and the uh, prophets of Baal in this chapter. Uh, help us to understand that, that there are vital implications of this, not only in witnessing, but in how we view the reality around us and how we invest our time and our thinking. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.